Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and each week we bring you visits and conversations with people doing healing work for this world, hearing what they're doing and what inspires them and supports them in doing it. Welcome to Spirit in Action. We're constantly looking for guests for Spirit in Action who are doing world healing work, and today's guest fits the bill to a T. Tara Button is author of A Life Less Throwaway, The Lost Art of Buying for Life, and she's the founder of BuyMeOnce.com. Ever lamented about the product that you bought that fell apart after just two months and then you found out it was warranted for just 30 days? We've all heard of planned obsolescence, but Tara tackles not only that, but lifestyle, ways of thinking, and short-sighted choices which degrade our lives and despoil our world. Tara worked in advertising until coming clear that she was not serving her own values and decided to help empower everyone to make better choices. We've got Catherine Thomas providing production assistance today as Tara Button joins us via Skype from the UK. Tara, how absolutely delightful to have you here today for Spirit in Action. Hello, it's wonderful to be here. Where exactly are you? I know you're in the UK somewhere, but I'm not sure exactly where. I am just north of London in a little village called Nebworth, which is very delightful. And is that where you usually spend your time or where do you reside? (laughs) This is my home. So I share my home with my new husband. I travel into London every day for work and we are in an amazing office called Sustainable Bankside, which is the largest group of sustainable businesses in Europe. So it's really cool offices like made out of reclaimed bits of pub and sea plastics. Yeah, it's this kind of massive warehouse which they've kitted out with a mezzanine floor and offices and garden sheds that we can have meetings in. <laughs> it sounds delightful. and It is. Is this something that you were part of innovating? Well, we were some of the first people into the building. I think we were the first people on the mezzanine. I think there were a couple of people in private offices before them. And when you're saying we, are you referring to Buy Me Once folks or which we are you speaking of? The we is myself and my team. So yes, Buy Me Once, which is my business. There's six of us in the UK and one in the US. As I was reading your book, A Life Less Throwaway, it wasn't obvious to me immediately that you were located in the UK. You talked about your work in advertising, for instance, and it seemed to me it was completely interchangeable with some of what happens in the US. So how wide has your experience been? Well, Buy Me Once is a US business as well as a UK business. We have incorporated in the US. So I kind of know that side of the economy and consumerism as well as in the UK. But they are quite similar in terms of the way people feel about buying things and what goes on in advertising, certainly. A lifeless throwaway definitely spoke to me in terms of my values, my objectives, and it has good resources for me. Who did you write the book for? Who is it maybe most useful to? I think it's useful to a wide range of people, but I think anyone who looks around their house and thinks, how did all this stuff get here, or feels potentially a little bit out of control when it comes to their spending, there might be 
impulse buying and not necessarily knowing where their salary goes each month or anyone who's kind of looking to take a little bit of a step back and to try and get a bit more meaning into their life and isn't getting that from their possessions. This book helps you not only to declutter your whole home, it then shows you how step by step to get rid of the manipulations that are trying to get us to impulse buy and then start buying things on your own terms and then how to find the best things that you can possibly buy and how that's helpful for you in your life from saving you stress, saving you money and saving the environment. I'm going to jump to one of the unusual things that you cited in your book, its television program, where everything's stripped bare. Yeah, stripped bare, yeah. The idea of the program was that the TV producers take away all of your possessions, including all of your clothing, leaving you literally stripped bare. And each day you get the opportunity to bring one more possession back into your life. And you have to choose what's most important to you. It was quite funny to see people deal with the situation, but um, (laughs) it was an interesting thought experiment into what we need in our lives when it comes to possessions. For Strip Bear, did you consider what you thought would be your first, second and third items to add back in? That's a very good question. I think I did. I think I would probably choose my cuddly dressing gown first. And then it would probably be the mattress. I think the third item would probably be the hardest because there'd be a huge part of me wanting my phone back because of everything that's on it and everything that it represents. But I think that there would be another bit of me that would want to hold off as well and see if I could live without my phone for a little bit longer, in which case it would probably be a toothbrush. Yeah. Uh, well, it's a good exercise. And of course, buy me once the whole concept of what you're talking about. It's not minimalism, but it is certainly conscious. You use the word being a curator of your possessions. And I'm not sure that conveys as well in the United States as it does in the UK. But people in the US are so ingrained in terms of judging their existence by the number of items they own. And part of this whole mixture that you explain in the book is also that the items that we have are increasingly garbage. A warranty of 30 days is not unusual for a pair of headphones, for instance. So we're going to talk about all those details. But first of all, there's the whole mindset about what do we need in our life? And that's why I cited the stripped bear <laughs> case. But also, it's, it's something about identifying ourselves with our possessions, which evidently you have disengaged yourself from significantly. How far along on that process do you think you are? Well, it's interesting because I think that as humans who are in a natural way, we're, we're kind of programmed to want to be accepted by society. And often that means conforming to a certain extent. And when all the messages we're getting from society are to buy certain things, then I think it can be very difficult to unpick that and try and figure out what's useful to you and what you're buying just to fit in or to keep up. And so what I found is a kind of freedom to buy things on my own terms. And that's not to say that I wouldn't buy a dress to look beautiful, but it's 
buying that dress because I've thought about what colors suit me and what textures I want to feel against my skin and what role I want to have in society rather than being told by advertising that I'm not going to be acceptable if I wear a dress that isn't bang up to date or of a certain color or certain cuts or that a celebrity is wearing something so I should wear that. So it's kind of about taking a step back, trying to figure out what's important to me in my life and then buying things on my own terms according to my own priorities. Well, can I get some concrete measures that maybe will indicate for me? Number one, how many pairs of shoes do you have? Okay, one (laughs) pair on my feet. And then I think I have about seven or eight pairs. Okay, that's one measure. And the second measure is how many hair care products do you have? Three, shampoo, conditioner, and serum. I can't live without serum. So those are two measures that I think would set you aside. Do you know what the average woman in the UK has in terms of shoes? I would say the average woman probably has more shoes than me. But I would say that my book and Living a Life Less Throwaway, I've tried to move away from arbitrary numbers because I know a lot of minimalists, they're like, well, you should only need this many things. And I kind of feel like everyone's different and everyone's purpose is different. For some people, the shoes in their life might be a source of real pleasure that actually it's not worth them giving up the shoes. Maybe they can give up lots of other things, but the shoes are something that it's worth them having in the same way as some people collect art. I think you can find meaning in objects. I just think that you need to find meaning in objects on your own terms and know why you're bringing things into your life. Folks, if you just tuned in, we are speaking with Tara Button, and she is the author of a recent book, A Life Less Throwaway, The Lost Art of Buying for Life. We're going to get into a lot of details about it, but part of what I'm trying to do here, Tara, is to set the background for how we look at the major issue, which includes Buy Me Once. And her website is buymeonce.com. You're going to, on that site, have some invaluable resources. But another resource I wanted to mention that's part of the book, of course, you designed this in, Tara. With each chapter, you include some exercises that Mm -hmm. people can do their own discernment about what they need or where their issues are. The book is filled with this, folks. So this is both an experiential book as well as conveying a whole lot of very valuable knowledge. I want to get to some of that knowledge about advertising because your background, your work is, was in advertising. I think that the advertising industry grew in size and scope by trying to sell people more and more stuff more frequently and to rapidly turn over. That in effect, by moving in the direction that you're trying to help support us moving, this lifeless throwaway, buy me once movement, you're actually decreasing the role of advertising in our lives. Did you at some point decide you didn't like that work? Yes, I did. Working in advertising was a real eye-opener. When you're trying to kind of figure out what's important in your life and you figure out that you're going every day to a job where you're trying to essentially persuade people to buy things that they may not want or may not need, I found that quite 
degrading after a while. I mean, especially like some of my briefs were like, can you increase the chocolate consumption of children from one kilogram a year to two kilograms a year? And I was like, oh, hell no. (laughs) You know, it was quite a lot of moral conundrums that came up in advertising all the time because you're essentially trying to manipulate people. And every single aspect of an ad is made to speak to people's subconscious. They're not made to speak to that kind of rational part of people's brains that kind of go, oh, well, do I actually need this? Or can I afford this? Or actually, this is silly. It's made to speak to the primal urges inside our heads, which completely bypasses the actual thinking brain. The more that I worked in advertising, the more I found certain practices within the advertising industry really revolting. So there was racism in terms of the casting that was allowed in ads. There was also prejudice against gay people as well when I tried to cast gay people in ads. And I found that to be really upsetting. And I kept on being told, oh, you know, you're in the wrong industry if you care about this stuff. And after a while, I was like, yeah, I'm in the wrong industry because I do care about this stuff. Did you find that the people you worked with had a different moral compass than you, that they had different views that they could more comfortably accommodate themselves with the fact that they were deliberately manipulating people? I don't think they necessarily saw it that way. They would get their pleasure and their sense of right and wrong by, am I doing right by my client? I'm doing good for the economy. That was something that they kept doubting back at me. It's like, oh, you know, we're doing an important role because, you know, we sell products and then people have jobs and that kind of thing and and they can kind of justify certain evils by saying that good stuff's happening too. And I can do that kind of thinking as well and so I'm not simply a black or white type person but I do think that moral evaluation, ethical evaluation is important. So you already said racism and discrimination, bigotry that comes out in other ways were important that you not support those. That seems to be important moral consideration. Did you get into advertising thinking that you were going to you were doing what you were doing or, or what led you there? Essentially, I fell into advertising because I'm a creative person and there are very few creative industries which are a steady source of money. Advertising is one of those. I wanted to be a writer, so writing copy for adverts was a way of being creative that got me being paid and it was only after being in advertising for a while that I started to really look at what the advertising industry is doing and a lot of it is about making people feel bad about the lives they have (laughs) and telling them that by buying something they'll feel better. (laughs) So yeah it started to dawn on me over time that this isn't necessarily the industry for me. In A Life Less Throwaway, you do at least a a brief synopsis of the history of advertising. I don't know that people realize the short timeline that advertising has occupied so much of our lives. I mean, you mentioned, I think, what, 5,000 years ago, maybe it was from Egypt, (laughs) the first advert, if you will, that has been discovered. But advertising really went super juiced into overdrive in only the 1900s. When would you date modern advertising as having originated? 
yeah, the 1900s, if you're talking about the bills that people would post all over the cities, I think, you know, that was happening in London back then. Before then, it was the town crier saying, hear ye, hear ye, you know, the market will be opening at this time, come down and get your hot buns or whatever, or whatever it was. And then the first television advert was in the US. And that was at a baseball game, I think television advertising is certainly one of the biggest changes in ads and they have such a huge effect because they can be so compelling and it's been shown that people who watch the most television advertising that they are the ones that are more in debt who spend more and who work longer hours in order to pay those debts and it's a scary thought um, what it all involves but with the internet advertising has become more and more central did you work into advertising that would have been directed via the internet as well as television or radio or whatever? Yes. So that would be called a 360 campaign. So we'd have campaigns that were out on every channel. So you've got leaflets coming through your door at the same time as radio ads coming into your house. You've got television going at the same time. And then when you click on Facebook, you see it as well. So there's no getting away from it. And I think the crazy thing is that people think that they don't notice advertising. In fact, most people, when you say that advertising isn't great for us and that it affects us in in negative ways in terms of, you know, self-esteem or higher spending or that kind of thing, they're like, oh, yeah, but I never really pay attention to ads. And, you know, I never rush out and get something as soon as I see an ad. And, you know, I'm not really that bothered. I kind of switch out. People think that they are tuning out but there's a part of their brain that's still noticing these companies would not spend billions and billions of dollars on advertising unless it worked. And it does work. And the conscious part of our brain might not be paying attention, but everything else is. That lizard bit of our brain that existed kind of 100,000, 200,000 years ago still is lapping it all up because it thinks that that information is going to be helpful that kind of part of our brain that's kind of looking for survival tips is is on the watch out for anything that's new and that's what advertising is giving us a whole stream of of new information it's telling us that this information is really important that we need to pay attention to it and like our conscious brain might be kind of tuning it out but there's a little bit of us that's listening and status is one of the elements of that, right? Our status in a group does affect our survivability, and it certainly affects our prosperity. Mm-hmm. But how important is it? Does advertising make us think that status is way more important than it is for our actual survivability? Well, what's interesting about status is that our inner brain is absolutely obsessed with status because you know in caveman days if we were kicked out of the tribe because we lost status in the tribe then we were dead essentially and what's super interesting is that if we feel like as modern humans today if somebody feels like they have low status their immune system actually goes down so we do actually die quicker if we feel we have low status So it is actually an incredibly powerful thing that's still a part of our physiology and our psychology. And I don't know whether people in advertising actually have consciously 
used this to manipulate, but they have certainly taken the fact that we are obsessed with status and use that to sell things. So, for example, you'll get these catwalk pictures and these model pictures of women and men looking down their noses at us from these magazines and billboards. They've got their chins up, their eyes looking down at us, and they're essentially saying, I am higher than you. I have more status than you. And this inner part of our brain goes, crap, oh my God, this person has higher status than me. This is distressing me. And therefore, I need to figure out a way of getting higher status. And how do I do that? Oh, by buying this bag that they have (laughs) or by dressing the same way that they are because they are the high status humans. You know, these celebrities, these models, they are the high status humans. And therefore, I need to be like them in order to be high status. Now, probably you and certainly I feel that I have disengaged from that whole circus of that. And it helps that I have both moral, religious background that encourages me to measure my status in different ways, right? It helps because that does refocus things. But I still imagine that men and women approach it differently. And of course, (laughs) there's no simple men are just like this and women are just like this. There's a, a big spectrum of identity across that. But I think if you as a whole measured it for those who have X and a Y chromosome in the United States, that men would think that they are less connected to status than women are. And that although my wife, her ex-husband, she tended to buy more shoes or more items like that, but his toys were really big and expensive. (laughs) Well, that's the thing. I think it is different potentially for men and women, and this is a massive generalization, so apologies for that in advance. But generally, the way it goes is that men tend to spend in a way that makes them look richer and it would be very expensive, bling, powerful things that kind of convey a sense of wealth. Whereas for women, it might be things that are just more focused on beauty and pure aesthetics. And I noticed in the book, there were certain areas in the book that I didn't relate to at all because I'm not a beautiful person. And <laughs> Of course you're beautiful. All beautiful people. We're all beautiful people. <laughs> <laughs> well, you and I both know that, but I, I'm afraid most of my beauty is inner. Let's put it that way. <laughs> but in A Life Less Throwaway, you do have uh, several chapters about finding your style, your color, and you experientially help people develop these things. My sense is that those chapters are going to appeal much more heavily to females. Does that make sense to you? I think you're right. I think because men, perhaps, uh, and again, this is a generalization, but I think they are are under less pressure to follow trends in that a man can get away with wearing the same suit or the same kind of jeans and sweatshirt combo for many, many years in a way that women, I think they're so expected to keep up with fashion that those chapters are to help people get off that trend treadmill in and I think that men are less likely to be on the trend treadmill so perhaps it is more useful to women but I would also say if you're kidding out your house as a man 
you want to make sure that you're not just getting stuff because it's in all the latest kind of magazines and ads that you've seen is that everyone has that style you want to really think about what you want in your life for the long run unless you have no interest in interior design at all in which case you know get what's useful and not going to fall apart do you have a degree that enabled you to work in advertising and if so did it include specifically addressing psychology no in fact i don't think a huge amount of people who work in advertising do have degrees in advertising. They tend to come from a really wide range of places. And it's only really once you kind of get into the industry that you kind of see where the psychology comes in. So for example, you know, a lot of it comes down to wordplay and messaging. So you might say, oh, you know, you can have this as part of a healthy breakfast. That doesn't mean that the product that chocolate spread is healthy. It means that if the rest of the breakfast is healthy, then you can have this chocolate spread with it. But what these mothers hear is healthy breakfast. And so they think, oh, this chocolate spread's actually healthy, so I can give it to my children. And, you know, when we ran that ad, it doubled sales of chocolate spread. Are we speaking of Nutella or what? <laughs> no comment. <laughs> <laughs> Other chocolate spreads are available. Folks, I do want to remind you that you are listening to Spirit in Action, and Northern Spirit Radio production. We're broadcast across the United States. I think we're up to 37 stations now nationwide carrying our programs, and I want to encourage you to support your local community radio station. It's so important to have an alternative venue for thought and music that is not controlled by the very limited ownership that we have of all media in the United States. I think that more than 90% of our media in the U.S. is owned just by six corporations, and it's perhaps a bit different over in the U.K., Tara? No. <laughs> Sadly not. Uh, yeah, we've got our Rupert Murdoch over here as well. So it's pretty limited. So I tend to go, to go for podcasts. So whether you're in the United States or the UK or probably anywhere else in the world, it is so important to have alternative media sources. Fortunately, the Internet provides for that. And in terms of radio, your local community radio station in the United States does an invaluable sourcing that you won't get anywhere else. So please support them both with your hands and your wallet. This is, as I said, a Northern Spirit Radio production. Our website, northernspiritradio.org, you can find on our site connections. So if you want to connect with Tara Button, who is my guest here today, and you can't remember buymeonce.com, although that's a pretty easy one, you can come by my site and you'll find links to her and all of our guests the last 13 years. Also, there's a place for comments. And please, I would love to have two-way communication. I'm saying this to you listening right out in Taos, New Mexico, or you listening in the seven stations in California listening, or over in Massachusetts or in Oklahoma. All the places where this broadcast, I'm asking that you communicate with me. Let me know what programs have been helpful to you, ideas for other programs that I should be doing, please reach out and connect with us on northernspiritradio.org. There's also a donate button on our page. This work is full-time, and it's supported only by listener donations, so please click when you come. Tara Button is author of the most recent book, Buy Me Once, is her company. The book is A Life Less Throwaway, The Lost Art of Buying for Life. 
and there's a lot of elements that go into buying for life. And I think we should get into some more of that detail right now. We have been just talking, Tara, about some of the history of advertising. I wanted to share with you one of the rather brilliant things that my wife, my ex-wife, did with our son as he was growing up. Occasionally, he would watch TV program, but of course, there's advertisements that are part of that. She taught him from the time he was three years old or so that as advertisement came up, he would just repeat to himself, no thank you, no thank you, no thank you. So an advertisement would come on and he would start saying, no thank you, no thank you. <laughs> That's amazing. What brilliant parenting. That's exactly what I essentially say we should do for all ads. If you can't avoid adverts, and what I would say is mute the ads, take the opportunity to make a cup of tea or gloss or do some crunches or call a friend. Try and stay away from ads as much as possible. But if you do happen to come across some, like in a magazine or you know, as you're walking along the street, look them straight in the eye and very consciously say, no, thank you, because that inner part of your brain has kind of pricked up its ears and said, oh, this is interesting. So you need to combat that consciously with a kind of face down stare and kind of like, I'm happy just the way I am. Um, and I think teaching that to kids early is a really great thing to do. I actually say in the article that I just wrote recently about protecting our children from consumerism is to kind of make it a game and say like who can press the mute button before the ads come on you know you win a point every time you do that because <laughs> I don't think there's anything that's worse for their mental well-being to be honest. One of the issues is environmentalism of course but there's also the issue of just personal happiness I think most people believe that more possessions will equal more happiness that more is better and there's actually a negative curve, and it's different for individuals. There is a threshold below which you will have trials, tribulations, unhappiness, mm. difficulties, but another threshold over which your possessions will be more burdened to you. Do you have an idea of where, for most people, those thresholds are? It's going to depend on a few things. It's going to depend on the people around you because we all constantly compare ourselves to the people around us if you are living in a tiny little house and everyone else is living in a big house that's going to be quite upsetting you know if you're living in a little house and everyone around you is living in shacks then you're going to feel pretty pleased with yourself so part of it is about your situation and part of it is what you like to do and I think that we should focus our energy and our money on possessions that help us to have experiences. So that would be like buy a bike, buy an instrument, <laughs> you know, rather than things that are to show other people. And if you're wondering whether you are buying something for yourself or for other people, then I like this thought experiment that you just imagine if everyone else on the earth disappeared today what would you wear? You know, it wouldn't be the Louis Vuitton shoes. It would be probably like Uggs or <laughs> sandals, <laughs> depending on where you're living. What is important in terms of possessions becomes pretty clear when you look at it from the point of view of what actually makes you happy. And in every scientific experiment that's ever been done on human happiness, it's about relationships. It's about the quality of those relationships about having experiences. So that's where we should be putting all our money. Some of that might be to live in an area 
which is able to give you nicer experiences. You know, maybe there's a park nearby or something like that. So possessions can help us in some ways, but I, I would say it's not about the quantity. It's about what they're doing for you. What you, they're doing for you is reaching towards something. There's a, another author I was just reading, and he said in his book, the purpose is not to, to maximize our happiness. That's not the purpose of life, and that, that's kind of a mistaken and common viewpoint. What would you say we're actually trying to maximize by the choices that are go along with a life less throwaway? I think you're trying to maximize meaning because we know that we're happy when we are pursuing things that are meaningful to us. And happiness is the symptom, but what we're looking for is to kind of live lives of purpose and lives of connection where our time on this earth, which is very short when it comes down to it, you know, what do you want that small time to mean and what do you want to leave on this earth do you want that to be a pile of junk that ends up in landfall or do you want it to be some better legacy in terms of the imprint that you've had on people's lives in terms of helping them and you know if you can buy things that are then useful to other people in the future then that's a far more helpful life than one that was kind of filled with plastic rubbish this idea of meaning, it makes perfect sense to me. And for me, I define this as a, in the field, sometimes it's in religion, but certainly it's in the field of spirituality, that somehow our meaning that we associate with the world defines what makes us happy. For some people, a situation is completely untenable, unlivable, because it doesn't jive with our sense of meaning. Some people are willing to die rather than lead a meaningless life of some sort. Where do you get your fundamental spiritual principles, the things that define what meaning is for Tara Button? Meaning for me is human connection and trying to make the world a better place leaving it in a better state than it was found is really important to me. I mean, I was driven to start by me once because I saw that long lasting objects, if we buy in that way, it can help the environment hugely. And I noticed that no one else was really talking about this. So the idea that I had this idea and I wouldn't share it with the world was untenable. I had to try with all my might to get this information out there in front of people. So I get my meaning and that kind of rush of happiness by knowing that I am doing something useful for humanity. But also, yeah, just family, friends. I'm not a religious person. I was brought up Catholic, but I'm now part of a community called Sunday Assembly, which is open to any denomination, whether they're religious or not religious. And it was interesting, we had a priest talk there, and, and most people who come to Sunday Assembly are atheists, but this priest came and he was like, you know, I, I want you guys to believe in God. And then he read a bit from the Bible, which was all about how God is love, and love is God, and believe in God. And I believe in love. I believe that love is stronger than fear. It's the one thing that we can use in, in our battle towards a better future. That brings me meaning. Before we got on phone, uh, you mentioned to me that your best friend is Quaker, which you know I am. Do you find that your values work with 
Quaker in the same way, or do you have to not talk about certain issues with the Quaker friends? I have friends who are, are very much on the religious conservative spectrum, and some things, if I bring them up, it's just going to be an argument. In Italian, I have never really argued, certainly not about anything Quakerly. I've always found that the Quakers I've met have been incredibly open-minded and inclusive. So, you know, I've been part of Quaker silences and, and I really appreciate that kind of meditative practice Quakers have, which I think is wonderful. And I think that their way of seeing the world and their sense of duty towards the world is something that really resonates with me. So, no, I've never had any kind of hoo-ha with the Quakers, but maybe I would if I met other Quakers. Who knows? I also, by the way, was raised Catholic, so I have that background. There are some things that I experience dissonance with my identity about the world, my pacifism, for instance, and so on, that sometimes clashes with some of my Catholic background. Do you find that you have the same degree of comfort talking with Catholic friends? Only if they try and convert me, I suppose. If you get people who try and persuade me to believe in God, then I get a little bit, I wouldn't say defensive, but I'm tired of that argument now. And so I don't go down that route anymore. I, I don't know, like religion, certainly in the UK, just isn't really talked about that much. It's not such a big deal as it seems to be in America. There are Sunday assembly meetups in America where they feel like they are a group in a sea of evangelical Christians and they feel like it's their safe space. It's a kind of matter of life and death that they've managed to find that, that group. Whereas for me, Sunday assembly is this just brilliant rocking community where we sing pop songs and it gives me a sense of meaning because they're all driven to do good in the world. So it doesn't mean the same to me in the same way as I don't feel like I have to fight a outside power that's trying to make me something else. The only time that really happens is when Jehovah's Witnesses come to the door and then I try to convert them to atheism and that's quite fun. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds delightful. What would you say is the purpose of Sunday Assembly? I have not actually heard of them before, although it certainly probably overlaps with uh, what a Unitarian Universalist is, certainly overlaps perhaps with some Quaker groups. I realize there's a lot of people, but I guess that you get together on Sundays. And so what would you say the overriding purpose of Sunday Assembly groups is? Their purpose is to live better, help often, and wonder more. That's their mission. It's to help people live the fullest lives possible. That's kind of their mission statement. And they do this through community building. It's essentially church attendance has gone way down. And so people have lost that connection with their local communities. There's very few other structures now in modern society where people come together as a community. You might get it a little bit with like mums around the school gate or parents, I should say, around the school gate, but actually communities have really broken down and we know that being part of a community is the top thing that contributes to our happiness and health. So the UK government are actually supporting Sunday Assembly now to help them build communities because people don't necessarily want to go to church but what Sunday Assembly has done is they've stolen the kind of structure of church and there's songs but they're like 
songs by Queen or like <laughs> other really fun songs to sing together instead of sermons. There's like a TED Talk style thing. And it was started by two stand up comedians. So it's funny. And there's tea and cake afterwards. And there's groups that go out to the community and paint playgrounds and help people. Um, so it has all the kind of community elements of church, but you don't have to believe in a dogma to go there. You can be Jewish and go there. You can go with your very Catholic grandma and be an atheist. And it's fine because no one's going to be offended by anything because they're not necessarily bringing up God. They're just helping people become better people. That does sound to me very heavily overlapping with how I perceive, for instance, the Unitarian Universalists in the United States in particular. They're only a step away. Quakers are certainly more religious or spiritual as a average or something, but it sounds very similar. So it sounds like a wonderful environment, and I'm glad that that supports you. Would you have been comfortable in that community before you moved out of advertising? Or is that something that fit better once you took the step to a life less throwaway? Uh, well, I was part of the community before I left advertising. And I would actually say that Sunday Assembly perhaps was instrumental in kind of waking me up to what other people were doing to improve the world. And why should I sit in my stable, cushy job, potentially not really helping anyone apart from myself to a pay packet? And so it kind of spurred me to do better things. So, yeah, it's been brilliant. Well, that is exactly as I would hope that a religion, and religion, by the way, comes from the Latin religio, meaning to bind up or to make whole. It's about community making as opposed to creed. And as you know, Quakers don't have creed. So anyway, let's get back to some more <laughs> about Buy Me Once. We haven't talked about that part of your book. And folks, we are speaking with Tara Button, who is author of a book, A Life Less Throwaway, The Lost Art of Buying for Life. And so I want to address explicitly planned obsolescence and its antidote, which is buymeonce.com. Yeah. Planned obsolescence, you talk about it in the book, and a light bulb went on for me, which is important since light bulbs were one of the documented cases of planned obsolescence. Could you talk about that? Yes, yeah, so planned obsolescence is a kind of a bit of a mouthful, but essentially it means people making stuff to break on purpose so that we have to buy more of them. It's very hard to catch companies at this because they're never going to admit it. But there is one very famous documented case of it happening, and it's called the light bulb conspiracy. And essentially, it was back in the 1920s or 30s, the loving light bulbs had managed to get up to about a 2000 hour lifespan. And the big uh, light bulb manufacturers all got together and they were like, you know, this is bad. They're lasting too long. If we brought it down to a thousand hours, then people would have to buy more of them. And so they all got together in this shady meeting in Geneva on Christmas Eve and shook hands and said, we're going to stop making light bulbs last as long. We're going to kind of halve the amount that they last. They even agreed to be fined if their light bulbs were lasting too long. And so that's what they managed to do. They managed to bring the lifespan of light bulbs right down. I don't think they've even like recovered now. And we know about that because there is document evidence of fines that they laid out for companies whose light bulbs were lasting too long. But what's interesting is that that's the only documentary evidence we have of planned obsolescence, but it kind of happens across the board in that 
companies make certain products that don't last as long as they should do, but they're never going to admit that, unfortunately. And it certainly permeates our existence. I think phones are often designed these days. You're going two years of having a single phone is maybe considered to be a long time, whereas in the family household I grew up with, here's 20 years of a phone sitting on the counter that was stable and strong, and you could drop it, which we kids did, of course, and it, it stayed intact. And now phones are replaced every two years or maybe more frequently. I, I'm certainly not one of the people to keep up with the trends that way. Did you find specific evidence in terms of the degradation of the warranties? You know, it used to be that this was going to be warrantied for five years, and now it's three, and now it's two, and now it's, you know what I mean, 90 days. Did you actually find documentation of that? Do you have that proof? Not when it comes to cell phones, because I think cell phone warranties have always been rubbish. But when it comes to appliances, they've generally gone down. And there's also documentary evidence of the actual breakage of those products have doubled since 2004. So, yeah, products break more and more often. So I think boilers that used to last for like 23 years back in the 80s and 90s now last 12, which is rubbish. Well, computers continue to go that way, too. In some ways, it seems like the new ones could be more robust, could be lasting longer times. I have in uh, office right here servers, computer servers, that have been running for 18 years, day and night, and they're still operating. I don't have to repair them. I mean, there's issues with upgrades in terms of operating system and all, but the computer is still running. And I'm appalled to think that if I replace the computer, if it lasts three years, I'll consider myself lucky. Yeah, I think it's not that they're putting some mythical chip into things that blows them up after two years. I think what's happening is that they are trying to make as cheap a product as possible. And therefore, they're not necessarily putting the quality of components in that is needed for longevity. And also, they're not prioritizing for upgrades or for being able to modularly make something better. They're designing things that can only be used in the format that they're being used at. And then you have to throw them away. They can't be upgraded. So that's the other problem. Well, so buy me once, and again, folks, website, buymeonce.com, you'll find all kinds of things that Tara Button and her co-workers are helping spread and improve the world. You have a lot of resources on the website. Could you explain some of them so that people have an idea why they absolutely need to go there before they make their next purchase? So buy me once started because I realized that if you buy a long lasting object, then it saves you stress, it saves you money in the long run, and it will help the environment. For example, if you buy a t-shirt that lasts two years instead of one year, you save 24% on your carbon emissions, and that's just a t-shirt. So um, you can imagine that longevity across all your products could have a massive environmental impact. So buy me once, finds the longest lasting and most sustainable products on the planet and shows you where you can find them to buy. 
and we research all product categories. I think we've got a couple of thousand products now and we're adding more every week through our researching. And our kind of criteria, if you like, is, is it made out of the best materials possible? Is it made in a way that makes it more fixable or more upgradable than others in the product category? And does the company offer better aftercare than its competitors? You know, will they offer free fixing or a lifetime warranty or something like that? Do the product reviews by actual people back this up? That's important. It's not just the company spouting stuff. It's actually tested by real people. And is it ethically made as well? Because that's pretty important to us too. Yeah, it would seem crucial. (laughs) And again, folks, buymeonce.com. Read about some of the background that leads up to this in the book, A Life Less Throwaway, The Lost Art of Buying for Life by Tara Button. I have to say, Tara, by the way, the reason I tracked you down, I have to give credit to my wife, Sandra, who is of good German stock. <laughs> she she takes quite excellent pride in the boots that she's had, that she's worn for 20 or 30 years. And it survived the ravages of time. It's good quality. That's what we should do. We should have all good quality things. So she was very intrigued when she saw a review about your book and said, Mark, this is someone you need to talk to for spirit and action. Have you found on your site, are you able to identify things that could last for a lifetime that really do last for a lifetime? Or has the ceiling been reduced so far that a number of products you really can't do better than saying it'll maybe last for a year or two? What we try to do is find the best in each product category, whatever that is. And if it's not very good, so for example, electric tea kettle, there is a rubbish category in terms of longevity. The best we could find there was a five-year warranty, I think. It really upset me that, you know, we're talking about sending people to Mars, but we can't get a kettle that won't break within like three years. (laughs) Um, So in that case, we basically try and get the industry to do something better. So I actually talk to manufacturers about building better stuff and they're beginning to listen to us, which is quite nice. But essentially, we promise to find the best in each product category, whatever that is. So when that comes to something like a frying pan, we've managed to find a pan with a multi-century warranty on that. So, <laughs> I mean, that's pretty great, isn't it? That's definitely good. You know, you'll be able to hand it down to your grandchildren's grandchildren. And there are other products that lifetime guaranteed or are incredibly tough. Like we've managed to get a soccer ball that you can stab and it won't ever deflate, which is pretty brilliant. But then we've got some really amazing brands who just really believe in longevity. They're craftspeople. So, for example, there's one of our brands called Elvis and Cress, and they make purses and wallets and bags out of disused fire hoses. So once the fire hoses are decommissioned, Elvis and Cress take them on and they make beautiful bags out of them, which they then guarantee to fix for a lifetime. So each product category kind of has a different angle on it, but we find the best brand within that. For my birthday this past year, Tara, my wife, she found something that definitely, it grabbed her fancy. And so she bought me a backpack that's made out of recycled inner tubes. 
So it's this durable, hard rubber that it's going to last forever. You know, <laughs> I suppose it's one of those items that should be on your list as well. And But I'm wondering if there's a way that our listeners and other people can contribute to your knowledge store. How do they do that? Oh, yes, please. If any of you know of any products that you think should be on our site, then we really want to hear about it. So you can reach us at Facebook and just search for Buy Me Once or through our contact page on the website. Or you can tweet me, I'm Tara Button on Twitter, or you can tweet Buy Me Once. There's a million ways to get in touch. And we are constantly looking at all our channels. So if you want to tell us about a craftsperson that you know that's making beautiful, long-lasting things, or if you know a brand that isn't already on our site, then do let us know. We definitely want to know about it. And there's so many resources that are available from Tara Button and her friends, and she's not the only person doing this work. A good place to start is by reading her book, A Life Less Throwaway, The Lost Art of Buying for Life. It's a wonderful book, and you go via her site, buymeonce.com. All those links, of course, are on northernspiritradio.org. Again, I want to remind you that her book not only has information, it has experiential exercises. When you spoke the thought experiment, Tara, I think those things are so valuable for people to be able to find what they really want, what's going to improve their life, which is going to improve the life of the planet as well. The book helps us do that, folks. And so I urge you to get a hold of Tara and her co-workers in producing a life less throwaway. There was one thing that I thought we needed. A life less throwaway is a good objective, but it's a negative, right? Yeah. We don't want to be that. There's a bumper sticker that we have. It says, he who dies with the most toys wins. <laughs> which is a pretty horrible concept. It's meant ironically, I think. I'm sure it is. But it would be what aliens would think if they looked down on us. They'd be like, okay, so the purpose of humans is to get as much crap into their houses as possible. And then just before they die, they realize that the crap didn't make them happy. But I do want to emphasize that even though the title of the book is Lifeless Throwaway, the key words are the last three words of the subtitle, buying for life. And I think that's meant on multiple levels that we're enhancing life. And it, it might be something that lasts the entire span of our years on the planet, but even more so, the life that we have on the planet is more fulfilled because of this kind of living. And so I highly recommend reading the book by Tara Button. The link's on northernspiritradio.org. Thank you so much, Tara, for spending this time with me here today for Spirit in Action. Brilliant fun. Great to talk to you. There's so much of value that I've discovered here in speaking with Tara Button that I haven't been able to include all of it in this broadcast. So please go to nordenspiritradio.org and look for the bonus excerpts for some of the gems that Tara and I talked about that couldn't fit on the airwaves. Do come by our site to find the linkages to buymeonce.com and other important connections with respect to Tara's work. And we'll see you next week for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. Check out all things Spirit in Action on northernspiritradio.org. Guests, links, stations, and a place for your feedback, suggestions, and support. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Helpsmeet, and I hope you find deep roots to support you to grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. Oh, oh, oh.